Welcome to the Frontlines of Freedom podcast brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative. My name is Ivan Mawadire and I'm a democracy activist from Zimbabwe. A couple of years ago, I stood up against the dictatorship of Robert Mugabe. We inspired a citizens movement that spoke truth to power and that moved millions of people to find their voice and demand a better nation and better governance. For that, I ended up in prison, beaten, tortured, and eventually had to escape Zimbabwe. And now I'm in exile. I'm loving talking to different people from different places who have done what I've done and many of them even more. Some of them are people who are incarcerated and still going through torture as we speak simply for standing up for what they believe to be their rights and particularly the right to be free and the right to live in a nation that is democratic and respects all its citizens. I'm talking to a man who has walked such a journey today. I have a feeling it's going to be amazing discovering why he chose to do the work that he did and why he continues to do that work even though it has cost him so much in terms of pain, physical pain, mental pain. It has cost him so much in terms of relationships and and so many things that he holds dear to himself. His name is Nicholas Opio. Nicholas Opio is an incredible lawyer from the nation of Uganda. Some of the accolades that Nicholas has received speak for themselves. I know that in 2015, he received the Justice Award from the Human Rights Watch. In 2016, received the EU Sakharov Fellows Prize. He received another prize in 2017, the German Africa Prize. In 2021, he received the Dutch Tulip Award for for human rights. And there's many more. And I know it's not about the award, but these speak so much of what this man has devoted his life to. And I'm so, so thankful that we have a chance to speak with him today and hear of his work and, 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 and hear of his passion and the work that he does. Nick, thank you so much for agreeing to being with us here on the front lines of freedom and a warm welcome. Welcome uh, to you. Thank you so much, my brother, for having me. I am a keen follower of the podcast. I've listened to the incredible stories of the people you have interviewed. What an honor for me um, to be hosted by you. Uh, but I also must say it's good to hear from you again. The last time you and I hugged was at uh, Yale University, um, speaking on the sidelines of the Africa Students Association annual conference. Um, so it's good to see you in person. It's good to hear from you. So I'm great. Good to be here, man. Nick, you, you have been an inspiration for me. When I started my work in Zimbabwe, I was looking out for models to follow because I was doing things that I had never done. I was doing things that I had not been educated for or prepared for. And, you know, one of the things I remember discovering was the chapter four organization that you founded in Uganda. I want to talk a little bit about that before I ask you about what inspired you initially as a young man to even get involved in advocating for the rights of people. So chapter four, Uganda, what is that and how did it start and what did it and what does it do today? It's interesting that you found inspiration in the work of chapter four. Uh, I think at some point as well, we found a lot of inspiration from your incredible work, your inspiring work in Zimbabwe. You know, the way that you are able to rally a nation around uh, the cause for freedom, the cause for a democratic society was, was truly inspiring. So, you know, as much as I, I inspired you or Chapter 4 inspired you, you did inspire 
not just me, but the young uh, men and women, boys and girls who work for Chapter 4. So if you, if I haven't told you this before, let me take the chance. To so <laughs> Thank you, Nick. You know, you know what? I think this is one of those things that sometimes in our line of work, hearing the impact of what we did that we didn't know at the time. So I appreciate hearing that. Thank you. But tell us about Chapter 4. So yeah, I mean, Chapter 4 is a civil rights organization that uh, my colleagues and I founded really formally in 2012, but had been running informally two years prior. And the reason we founded Chapter 4 was that we were doing all this human rights and pro-democracy work on individual basis and, you know, going across the country, representing pro-democracy activists, members of the civil society, members of the press, and, you know, we were being spread thin. And we came together and founded an institution to make sure that the work was more streamlined and more organized. And Chapter 4 was born first, you know, in, in, in my living room, um, you know, and subsequently moving out of my living room into a small office in the outskirts city. It is since then reason to become one of the most prominent human rights organizations in the country and the region as a whole, doing some of the most incredible and trailblazing work in the country. Some of the cases have done path setting. Uh, Chapter 4 has now grown into a big organization of nearly 18 lawyers. It's still up and running in Uganda. It's had its own challenges, but uh, it's still up and running. I I want to give our listeners a, an understanding of Uganda as a democracy or as a dictatorship. Uh, frame that for us. Yoweri Museveni has been the president now for how many years? Well, since I was six years old. I'm now, I'm now 42. So. <laughs> so this is all your life. I've known only one head of state. President Yoweri Museveni came to power through a coup, through a force of arms in 1986. He took control of the country and inspired so many people at the time because he had a very progressive agenda. He took over the country that was in the doldrums, uh, really economically and, and in all manners. The regimes that he overthrew were authoritarian regimes responsible for gross human rights violations. He said he had waged the five-year rebellion to fight against abuse of human rights, you know, the state of our democracy. So he took over power and people were very hopeful. And he did incredible things in the first 10 years. When he came to power, uh, he's uh, famous to have said the change was a fundamental change in, in his first address to the nation and went about a process of investigating human rights violations in the country, established a commission of inquiry, signed up to um, numerous international human rights instruments, international covenant on civil and political rights, that he, you know, the Convention Against Torture. He did? He did. In 1986, when he came to power, in the space of one year, signed about four major international human rights instruments and set upon a process of writing a new constitution. Um, so in the first 10 years, we went through a constituent assembly that wrote what was a very progressive constitution that established a national human rights institution, you know, had an elaborate bill of rights, you know, had the rights of women and minorities protected. And so he, we did a good job in the first 10 years and people were very, very hopeful. You know, you know something, as you're telling this story, I'm thinking to myself, this sounds 
so familiar to me because it is exactly, when I say exactly, I mean almost to the letter what happened in Zimbabwe. You know, the first kind of five, six, seven, eight years of Robert Mugabe were hopeful. It looked like he was doing well, you know, it, 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 and, and I'm finding this to be quite an interesting, you know, narrative that has played itself out in a number of places. Let's just hold that for a second. You are six years old. He comes into power. But by then you have seen some horrific things, Nick, in your life. Tell me about some of the encounters, some of the things you saw during what was a war, during what was a horrible time in Uganda when people were being killed and you were a young boy. It is difficult to have a good memory of what happened in the first six years of my life. I was a young kid. I can tell you, my father, who was party supporter of the Uganda People's Congress, the party that was in power, that was uh, that President Museveni was fighting against, was a target of you know, so many attempts uh, at his life. And, and we had to abandon our home in, uh, in Gulu town and retrieve to the countryside. Gulu is uh, four and a half hours north of Kampala. And we had to go into the countryside and my father went into hiding. This became even more intense when President Museveni took over power in 1986, precisely because of two reasons. The government that had been overthrown, many of its remnants formed a rebellion and they expected the supporters of that party to follow them in the bush. And my father said no. And so they were hunting for him. On the other hand, President Museveni's soldiers were also hunting down supporters of the previous government. And so my father was in between a hard place on a rock, so to speak, and had to take refuge in a Catholic church and was living under the church altar for over a year. His uh, family had to endure abuses from both rebels and government forces. I still recall as a young boy seeing rebels come into our home, uh, beat up my mother, abduct my siblings, my elder siblings, government soldiers coming into my mother's compound and peeing in the cooking pot of my mother and peeing in the drum of brewing alcohol. My mother had taken to brewing local gin to survive and government soldiers came and they were peeing in, you know, in the drum of local gin, defecating in my mother's uh, cooking spot in the kitchen, you know, the three stones in the corner where... And you're watching this as a, as a young boy. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. My stepmothers, I had two other you know, mothers, you know, we call them stepmothers, were gang raped by government soldiers, you know. And so as a child, I witnessed horrific abuse uh, by President Museveni's army, as well as the rebels, uh, that he had just overthrown from government. And most of my childhood was really spent in this sort of environment where, you know, uh, I was a frontline witness to heinous human rights abuse. Uh, in the years of President Museveni's government, there were stories of President Museveni's government burying people alive in mass graves by district in a place called Buchoro. Uh, they rounded up adult men, uh, dug a pit and put them in and buried them alive. There were stories in uh, Teso, which is the east of Uganda, where President Museveni's soldiers uh, went and rounded up men, able-bodied men in a village, put them in a train wagon, locked them up to choke to their death in what is now called the Mukura massacres. And so these were my childhood experiences. This is a lot to take in. I mean, this is the, the man who then becomes president. I'm trying to think in my mind 
how how does anyone trust the government of someone who comes to power with that kind of a track record? I mean, is that was there a choice? Nick, I'm trying to figure out how, how this happens. There were two things. While President Museveni was establishing himself and, and gaining control of the entire expanse of our country, he was on the one hand committing these atrocities, especially in the regions where the government he had just overthrown, uh, the leader came from, namely northern Uganda. So many would say he was involved in revenge killing uh, towards the people that he had just overthrown. And on the one hand, he was committing to establishing a new constitutional order. He was investigating human rights violations that had occurred in the country from 1962, the year of our independence, to 1986, the year he took over power. He was establishing a, a constitutional review commission. Um, and so he was, while killing and murdering people in northern Uganda, doing all these good things. And so people were willing to give him a chance. And the second reason was this. President Museveni, as a student at the university and an actor in Uganda, was known to be a Marxist, a socialist, who aligned himself to the socialist ideology, uh, who didn't believe in free markets, he believed in the role of the state, right? But the moment he took over power, he began to ally himself with the capitalist West in the hope that they would use their resources to revamp the economy of the country. And so he completely supplanted himself to the World Bank, the IMF, or what they call the Bretton Woods institutions, because he looks to them for money to revamp the economy. And so he became a darling of the West uh, in that respect and undertook deep structural reforms in the country uh, at the behest of uh, the World Bank and the IMF. And the global West, you know, you know, there's again, you know, the patterns for me are just are just so similar because Robert Mugabe did the exact same thing in the early 1980s of his rule. He committed these horrible atrocities, killed over 20,000 people in the south of the country. But then he goes on to become the darling of the West. In fact, he was knighted by the Queen of England uh, in the in the late 80s, I believe it was. And the same thing became a darling of the Bretton Woods institutions and uh, instituted structural adjustment program in Zimbabwe. Um, I'm wondering whether in your mind, looking at all of this, there seems to be sometimes a disconnect between the reality on the ground in our countries what other nations, and I, would, I have to say in particular the West, would would see or, or want to see and what they are willing to work with? I don't think there is a disconnect. The West has a pretty good idea of the atrocities these governments are committing in their country. But they have interest. And those interests are not the interest of the African people, in our case, Ugandans, or in your case, Zimbabweans. It is their own interest. As long as somebody is an agent, is a subcontractor for those interests, regardless of what they do to their citizens, they will be darlings of the West. And I can give you a fantastic example of President Museveni. The other reason why Museveni became a darling of the West, and you have to look at what uh, the late Madden Albright, may her soul rest in peace, and the Clinton administration did, they referred to four African leaders as the new breed of African leaders. These leaders included Ethiopia's Meles Dinawe, Eritrea's Isaiah Afaweki, uh, Rwanda's Paul Kagame, and Uganda's Yoweri Museveni. These were hailed as the new breed of African leaders. 
and we're doing a red carpet reception in the West. But the real reason was that the American regime, using their proxy, the SPLA in South Sudan, were engaged in a proxy war to fight the Arab North and looked to these states as bulwarks against the surging Arab North uh, of Omar al-Bashir and al-Turabi from Sudan, okay? And praised these guys, gave them ammunition. All of them turned out to be autocratic leaders. In fact, many people who worked in the Clinton administration are now apologizing. If you read the book by uh, Susan Rice, Tough Love, I think at page 88, she offers a feeble apology of their description of these four leaders as new breed of African leaders. So the West has interest, and those interests play out in the way that they deal with autocratic regimes in, in the case of Uganda, President Museveni. So we are caught sometimes, in fact, many times, betwixt this place of the interests of the powers that be and the need for freedom, genuine freedom and democracy, and therein lies for the work that you and I are involved in, you know, sometimes. I want to just take us back to your journey to becoming Nicholas Opio, you know, human rights defender extraordinaire. You know, and I, I know you, you, you know, you, you will fight me at, at that description, but it, it, it is what it is. Generous to me. You're far too generous to me, my brother. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I want to figure out at what point Nick Opio decides that I'm going to devote my life now to this work of defending people who are being abused. I mean, one of the incidences I read about is a part of your life is that you, on your way to school, you would be jumping over dead bodies. Yeah. I mean, as a child, I had a pretty traumatic experience growing up, living in a, in a war zone uh, at the epicenter of a two-decade war in northern Uganda. I was living right there. Uh, my own friends and colleagues were abducted by the LRA and killed. Uh, many of them uh, have never, you know, returned. Uh, some of them returned, but their lives have been completely decimated. My own siblings, my sister, and my brothers were abducted by the LRA. In the case of my sister, she was a sex slave for over eight years. She was lucky to have, you know, to return. I really was, as a child, pretty traumatized. You know, um, there was not a night in most of my childhood that I never had a gunshot, that I didn't hear about somebody I knew who was killed or abducted by a uh, rebel, you know, uh, of the Lord's Resistance Army. And, and growing up as a child, I was really grappling with these ideas and, and wondering if there was a better world outside. And so I took to uh, reading current affairs. I took to reading books and autobiographies of, you know, people like FDR, uh, De Clark, people like Kennedy of, of the United States, because I wanted to find out what was happening outside of, of my own environment. I used to be an ardent listener of the BBC because my father's way of teaching me to speak good English was to make me listen to the BBC, focus on it. And so I listened to Robin White on the BBC. I listened to Elizabeth Oyene. There was a BBC reporter, uh, Anna Buzello, who was reporting Ulu. So I was quite interested. And for me, contrast was very sharp. My lived experiences and what I was hearing on the radio or newspapers. And so it set me upon a path of, you know, of, of, you know, searching for what I could do. Interestingly, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to report to the BBC. I wanted to be like uh, Anna Bozello, who was reporting from Gulu. And so for a long time, I harbored ambitions of being a journalist. I was writing in the school newspaper. I was... Uh, 
I do recall when I was in primary seven, when the first African was elected to be the Secretary General of the United Nations, Boutros Ghali from Egypt. I'm the one who broke the news to the headmaster, and he was so excited. And, you know, he, he made me, you know, break the news to the students in, in the school assembly. And so I wanted to be a journalist. But for a long time, I was struck by just how inadequate it was to just write about and speak about what I I, I wanted to do. So in, in 1994, something dramatic happened. A young, articulate politician emerged uh, in my part of the country to contest for elections to become uh, a delegate to the Constituent Assembly that President Museveni had established. He was so smart, so articulate. He inspired so many of us. This was Norbert Mao. I was to learn later that Norbert Mao was my first cousin and that he was the guild president of the university. He was a lawyer. He had opened up the first legal aid clinic in northern Uganda in the middle of the war. And so I just wanted to be a lawyer like Norbert Mao uh, and became very close to him. And, and, and I was like his personal assistant, carrying his bags, you know, attending campaign rallies, going to the legal aid clinic. I ended up in the four years of my time at law school working as a volunteer at this legal aid clinic much later, even when Norbert Mao had left. And so 94 was the turning point, And Norbert Mao was uh, that spark that uh, changed my ambitions from being a journalist to being a lawyer. And, and seeing what he did, I wanted to be a human rights lawyer like he was and went to law school, did nothing but human rights law. When I finished law school, I was given a job by one of the biggest law firms in the country. And I told them, no, thank you. I went back to Northern Uganda to work for this legal aid clinic. Wow. You know, your sense of mission and purpose, you know, Nicholas is quite striking. And I think this is something that is very, very rare you know, when people are younger, you know, our ambitions usually are around, uh, you know, the fame and the fortune side of things. And yet you were drawn to the service side of things. You've defended so many people and so many rights over the course of your career and the course of your life. They include things to do with electoral law, uh, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, uh, the LGBTQ uh, community. Tell me your most memorable, and I know this is going to be difficult because you've had many, but your most memorable case uh, that you represented and defended uh, so far? Look, every single case is important. Every single case is unique. It is so difficult to pick one simple case. But if I'm to pick a case that has had a lot of impact on my life, both negative and positive, it will be two cases uh, that really, in my view, were life-changing. The first was the 2014 challenge to Uganda's Anti-Homosexuality Act. As, as you may know, the, Uganda is a pretty, you know, conservative society in so many ways. And so many people do not think that the LGBTI community have any rights and, and shouldn't exist in our society. In fact, they deny their existence and then they face a lot of violence. And so they passed a law in 2014 that uh, criminalized same-sex relations, and provided for lengthy sentences for the members of the LGBTI community. So we went to court to challenge this law. It was the most unpopular case to take. If it was the basis of public opinion, no sane person would have taken this case to court. We challenged this case in court. At the time, I was the 
Secretary General of the National Bar Association. As soon as we filed this case in court, Christian lawyers in the law society who call themselves the Uganda Christian Lawyers Fraternity mounted a hate campaign to boot me out of the law society and said their leader could not uh, represent the country's LGBTI community in a case like that. And so they succeeded in throwing me out of office. My name was on Christian radios and churches every single Sunday of, of the month of the year. Um, I had people attack me. I had people abuse me. People spit in my face and call me all sorts of names. Um, but we won the case in, in August of 2014 when the Constitutional Court declared that the law was unconstitutional for having been passed uh, without proper procedures. Um, but the hatred, the vitriol uh, around my work continues until now. I had my own siblings. We have a very large family. My father had 54 children. Some of them disowned me. Some of them disowned me until I was a disgrace for representing the country's LGBTI community. And so that case had a real impact on my life and still continues up to now uh, to define my relationships with so many people. I had a girlfriend that I was thought I was going to marry. Uh, unfortunately, her father was a priest and the father didn't approve of our relationships. And so I lost relationships. I lost family, I lost siblings. But we won the case. We set a new conversation in our country that I think has been very helpful for a very small minority. The second case has to do with my work around Bobby Wine, 70s uh, latest challenger, you know, an unknown entity before uh, becoming uh, uh, the country's leading opposition leader. He was just a musician. And this is a young man in, in, in Uganda. He's what? He's, he's barely over his 40s? He's 38. He's 38. Younger than me. <laughs> so, so he was a musician to begin with, ran for parliamentary office and became a member of parliament, uh, an opposing uh, member of parliament. But now he has become literally the largest opposition figure uh, to Yoweri Museveni. For a very long time, Bobby Wine was a socially conscious artist whose song inspired people, but also his story. He was born in the country's largest slum in the country and emerged from destitution, com complete destitution in a ghetto, what he calls a ghetto, and became known as a ghetto president because of his inspiring work and music in this ghetto in the capital. He ran for a member of parliament, and in three years of being an MP, he became such a, an enigmatic figure, an inspiring figure to the young people in the country and contested for the presidency. Now, his path to contesting for the presidency wasn't an easy one. Right, and this is where you come in. And I had known Bobby Wine since 2005 when he was an artist, um, friends. And so when he began to go through these problems, I was already a human rights lawyer. People knew me. And so they came to me and said, look, our rights are being abused. And so I represented Bobby Wine when he was beaten to near death, tortured and charged in a military court for illegally possessing guns. He didn't have any guns. He was subsequently charged with treason. Uh, we went and represented him and, and, and got him out of jail and, and got him out of the country to receive treatment because he, he was badly bitten. When he got back into the country, he declared he would run for presidency and the abuses just continued, not just against him, but against his family, against his supporters. 
myself in particular committed to representing people who were his supporters whose rights were being abused. And, and, and that cost me a lot of problems and subsequently uh, led me to myself being arrested and uh, having to leave the country uh, for the last few years. I have to recognize um, that you are, I won't say drawn towards trouble, but I think drawn where the need is big, but the help is little. You know, you are, you seem to want to, to touch the things that nobody wants to touch. My mother thinks I'm reckless. <laughs> she says I should be like any other lawyer, get a big job, build a big house, build a big car, and avoid this case. My father, though, until his death uh, uh, in June of this year, was super proud of me. He, I think in many ways, saw himself in me because he was also quite the activist. Uh, so my father was uh, very brave. And I think that uh, whatever he's, he's at, he's looking down upon me and saying, that's my son. Nicholas, you represented, and this is really difficult for me to imagine, again, your heart. You, you defended a rebel commander, you know, um, who had committed crimes against your family. Yeah. You know, look, um, Thomas Coyello, who has been held in pre-trial detention for 14 years now, for a young man uh, of his age, he has spent most of his life under captivity of two individuals. Uh, for many years, he was held captive by the LRA because he was abducted as a young child and kept in the rebellion for many years. And now for 14 years, is being kept and held by President Yoweri Museveni in prison. Came from uh, a village neighboring mine in northern Uganda. His father knew my father. His mother knew my mother. Our families knew each other. When Thomas Koyolo was abducted on his way to primary school, he suffered the same fate like my sister. He suffered the same fate like my brothers. It could have been me. I was lucky. I never got abducted. And so when he was abducted, like everybody else, was turned into this killing machine because the way of retaining people in the LRA once you were arrested or abducted was to take you back to your own village, to kill your own people, sometimes relatives, brothers, so that you wouldn't have any uh, impetus to leave rebellion. If anybody was caught trying to escape, they were bludgeoned to death in the presence of all other abductees. And so Thomas Coyolo was turned into this monster from a child innocent child going to primary school, 11 years old, turned into this killing machine. But be that as it may, when Thomas Coyola was captured by government forces, the country had passed a law that provided amnesty for anybody who had come back from rebellion. Much senior commanders to Thomas Coyolo, like Muse Banya, who were his commanders in the bush, were granted amnesty by the state. In essence, the state offered not to prosecute them, uh, for their role in you know, renouncing rebellion. But Thomas Coyolo, a mid-level commander, a young child abducted and turned into a killing machine, when he came back, instead of being granted amnesty, was being prosecuted for the crimes he allegedly committed while in the book. And so he needed legal representation. His father went to my father um, and made a personal plea for me uh, as a human rights lawyer represent Thomas Coyolo. And so they asked me to do so. Now, I did so for several reasons. First, Thomas Coyolo could have been me. In him, I saw myself. Uh, as a society, we were uh, negligent, in fact, if not derelict in our duty in protecting him. 
and made him get abducted and turn into this killing machine. But secondly, I thought that he deserved due process and equal treatment before the law. If senior commanders of the LRA who are the perpetrators of this war, the financiers and commanders of this war, were being pardoned uh, under a law that the country had passed, there was no reason why Thomas Poyolo would not be uh, granted amnesty. And so I saw an unfair process. But the second thing was that this was an opportunity to contribute to the legal jurisprudence of the country. And I wanted to be a part of that process. And so I joined uh, a team of lawyers representing uh, Thomas Coelho, the first ever trial of a rebel commander before the first ever international criminal court in Uganda, uh, and spent over 10 years uh, representing Thomas Coelho. It was a difficult decision because Thomas Coelho committed crimes against people that I know, relatives, friends. But I thought that uh, he, like anybody else, deserved due process. And I offered to represent him and did so for uh, over 10 years. And the reason that I, the way that I did this case was not like any other file. Thomas Quayle became a friend. He didn't pay me a single coin. Instead, I spent all my time and money sending him warm clothing in prison, buying him his his basic stuff in prison, on many occasions uh, offering money for his family to travel from up north to come to the capital to see him. So his sisters, his brothers, his his kids, his, 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 his father before his death. He just became a friend. He became a human being uh, that I wanted to learn and hear from. It's difficult not to, to get goosebumps and, and uh, you know, uh, hearing what you're saying, but, but at the same time also well up with tears. The sheer spectrum of emotions that you've had to deal with in these complicated moments of your life and the decisions that you took that... All people, despite what we think, deserve to be noticed as individuals, deserve to be respected and deserve to have dignity amongst us. Again, I'm just struck by that, by that range and spectrum. But today is 22 December 2022. It is literally on the day, to the day, two years. I can see you shaking your head. Two years when you were arrested in Uganda, 22 December 2020, and went through a horrible experience. Do you want to just walk us as best as you can? Because I know it may be difficult to walk through it. What happened during that time and your, and, and how you eventually had to leave Uganda uh, to, to where you are now? Exactly two years, almost to the hour. Uh, as I speak to you now in Uganda, it's, it's in the afternoon um, that I was violently and rudely arrested by, uh, abducted, so to speak, really, by Uganda Security Services. And, and let me just uh, step back a little bit and, and just explain the events before my... The country was going through an election uh, in which President Museveni was facing one of the difficult challenges to his presidency, uh, led by Bobby Wine. The supporters of Bobby Wine had been subjected to all manners of, of violations, People had disappeared. People had been severely tortured and, and were offering legal support to these people whose rights were being abused. But in November of 2020, something dramatic happened. Bobby Wine was arrested on a campaign trail, ostensibly for violating COVID regulations. His arrest was uh, received with widespread protest across central Uganda. His supporters just took to the streets to protest his arrest and said, 
is a candidate, he's campaigning uh, like anybody else, nobody should arrest him. The Ugandan security forces' response to this protest was to get out on the streets and shoot and kill people with life. On the 18th and 19th of November, by their own admission, they had, in an extrajudicial killing, shot and killed 56 people in the capital. Uh, this is what they admit, completely suppressed. And so we were simply investigating these killings. We were documenting these killings in three districts in the country. And we had, until the time of our arrest, credible, verifiable evidence of photographs, post-mortem reports, testimonies of families, photos of graves of people who had been shot and killed. And our count was 158. And we were still counting. We were still documenting. I think they killed more than 158 people in these two days. And these were ordinary people, mostly in poor neighborhoods, who were thought to be distributing used tires, which were being used by protesters on the street. These were young people who were wearing party colors of the ruling of, of, of Bobby Wine's party. These were market vendors uh, who were shot on the front of their head, in their chest, a shot that was targeted and intended to kill. I think that the security forces were very uncomfortable with our investigations because we were going to put this out in the public. We we're going to make this available to everybody who cared. In the afternoon, when I and my four researchers were comparing notes over lunch, they had just returned from uh, other districts and areas. Three 14-seater minibuses pulled up to this restaurant in the outskirts of Kampala where we were seated. To my count, about 14 heavily armed uh, individuals wearing bulletproof vests, helmets, um, jumped out of these tinted 14-seater minibuses and uh, made a dash to our table and promptly picked all five of us. Um, they took all my belongings, including my vehicle that was parked in the parking lot of the restaurant, my computer, my phone, and uh, put me in, in this van and promptly put over my head a sack. Um, my recollection was that this sack was so smelly that uh, I think had soaked blood and dirt mixed together. Uh, and they put that over my head and began to drive, um, drive, drive me around, around the city. They drove me to the chieftaincy of military intelligence. I know this because these areas are very familiar with me. I've been in and out of that place representing people. But during uh, this time they were driving me, I would pull down the sack and the thread would open and I would see little bits of my neighborhoods and I could tell where I was being taken. And so they took me to this chieftain to military intelligence and left me in the vehicle while trying to deal with, you know, uh, what to do with me. And in this van, hot, uh, windows all closed, you're almost suffocating. They then subsequently, I think, decided to take me to a detention facility. Um, took me to that facility where I spent two days. And on Christmas Eve, I was sent away to a maximum security prison. Um, yeah. Um, um, and all our research information um, 
were taken. All our data was confiscated, computers, phones, flash drives, images. Um, and prior to my arrest, they had broken into my house in the middle of the night in, I think, September 8th, the night of, sep of September 8th into the morning of September 9th. I was dated. My house was stripped of uh, all electronics, um, even little small flash disks that was at the back of a computer. You know, how you watch pirated movies, you know, Uganda, they had the time to go behind and take that small little flash disk. I think they thought I had information on them. They, they broke into my office um, and uh, uh, stole a computer. Uh, I, I think they thought I had information in the computer. Um, and, and a few days uh, after that, um, an army car tried to run me over on the street. Yeah. Th that then culminated into my arrest. And uh, what were you charged with at this point? So I was charged with money laundering. The allegations were that a grant that our organization had been receiving five years prior to that time of about 300,000 US dollars from the American Jewish World Service were the proceed of crime. Absolutely bogus charge. Uh, the American Jewish World Service is a world-renowned international organization supporting incredible work across the world, in India, uh, in Latin America, across the African continent. And that this grant of $300,000 uh, was, was a proceed of crime was just ridiculous. And so I was charged with money laundering, um, uh, locked away. And so, so two things really during my arrest, I tried so much not to allow anybody to get into my head. So I used humor. I would crack jokes with people who had arrested me. And I can tell you one of the jokes, you know, when they ordered me to leave the van and remove my shoes, uh, I think somebody was quite upset. I still had my shoes on and said, why is he having his shoes? Take out your shoes. So I told the guys, look, happy you've worn my shoes. Here they are. So I gave him my shoes and then he ordered me to run. Meanwhile, I had all this sack in my head. I said, dude, I want to run, but I can't see where to go. <laughs> if you could take this off. <laughs> he was so upset. And he said, you, you think we are joking? I said, no, no, I don't think you're joking. And, and I'm also not joking. I want to see where I'm supposed to run to. And, and he said, I'm going to romance you. Now, the term romancing, I came to understand was torture, beating up. Um, but I told him, I said, oh, I didn't think you were gay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Again, you know what? I, I don't know where you found it in you to, <laughs> to joke like that. I mean, that's a jab at him, you know, in a very serious moment where you could get hurt. So, yeah, he just took me to a cell. And again, when I got to the cell, the first night was quite interesting. Everybody wanted to talk to me. People who had been in cell for, this is a police cell, been there for three years. Some of them had been there for months. I didn't sleep. I was talking to people. But there was this young boy in the middle of the night who uh, collected everybody's blankets and put them in a pile at the door of, of our cell. Uh, and our cell was next to a female cell. So, you know, the female cell wasn't closed because they had children and the kids were always crying and moving in and out. But so at about 3 a.m. in the night, this boy stood on the blankets and through the iron bars uh, in the door, he was kissing a woman through it. <laughs> <laughs> and I watched all of this. And in the morning, when we were taking porridge, 
I sought to bring this issue up. I said, I saw what you were doing last night. He said, you had better be lucky I wasn't kissing you. I've been here so long. (laughs) (laughs) And so I use humor to placate myself from the trauma of being incarcerated. The second thing was that I worked. When I was taken to the maximum security prison, again, everybody wanted to see me. There were so many young people who had been in detention for months, if not years, who had never seen a courthouse, who had never seen a lawyer. So my cell room became an office uh, because the prison, the prison warders knew me so well and they gave me my own room with a reading table. And so every morning there was a long queue outside my door. So you were, wait, Nick, so you were representing prisoners whilst a prisoner yourself. I got four people in the first four days of my detention released from prison. (laughs) What? Are you serious? I just got to work. I got to work. I found these were teachers, you know, lower school primary teachers who had been sentenced to a year in prison or fine of a million shillings for uh, stealing, uh, you know, school fees. This was a time when the country was under lockdown. The teachers didn't have work, didn't have money. So these guys admitted to having taken some, you know, little money, I think under $200. And so I, I told people who were coming to see me in prison to bring 1 million shillings. And we paid off their fines and they all left. <laughs> they all left. <laughs> so I just buried myself in work. Ah, uh, Nick, you, you know what, Nick, you really bless my heart. Just your sense of turning things on their head. You know, the moments of pain become moments of, of purpose, you know, for you. This is, this is such a theme in, in, in the things that you, the things that you have done, but eventually leave because you are in exile now as I am. And I'm curious to know how you got out of prison and how you, you know, uh, uh, finally found your way uh, into a place of some sense of freedom and safety. So I learned after my release from prison that there was a huge movement across the world for my release. I had governments from Europe to the United States protesting my arrest. I had international organizations protesting my arrest, UN special rapporteurs. My own local chief in Northern Uganda wrote on then David Achana, held a press conference and demanded that the government should release me. So there was an outpouring of support from the civil society movement in Kampala to international organizations and governments. And this pressure came to bear. And after one week of detention, I was released on a court bail. Uh, a very courageous Ugandan judge um, in a very detailed ruling, said I had a right to uh, be released on bail. And so I got out on bail. Um, but my movements were restricted. My passport was, you know, was, was taken away from me and I couldn't leave the country. Um, so I spent nine months begging to be tried. And I said, if I have committed any crime, let me serve the sentence now. Don't prolong my suffering. If I have not committed any crime, uh, you know, um, let me be. Yeah, let me go. And so after nine months, again, a courageous judicial officer uh, listened to my plea and gave the government one week to prosecute my case and that if they didn't prosecute it, he would dismiss it. Before that one week ended, uh, the government withdrew all charges against me. People who are 
in the security services who were sympathetic to to me and 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 let us know that uh, there were plans to rearrest me and take me to a military court. And if I had been taken to a military court, uh, I would I would never see justice. And so I had four hours, Evans, to leave Uganda on a Sunday uh, when I got this information. And so I didn't even have time to say goodbye to my own daughter, uh, to my parents, to my family, anybody. Only three friends knew what was going on. My lawyer and two other friends who mobilized $5,000 and with a shirt on my back and a small rucksack, uh, I got an air ticket out of Kampala. But my departure was even more dramatic because the guys advised me not to buy a ticket too early, but also to take the last flight out of the airport, which is a 4 a.m. flight, because at that time nobody is, uh, is alert. And so we did that. I got a ticket on Egypt Air, uh, went through pre-boarding. I found a former classmate who was an immigration officer who stamped my passport, and we laughed and joked about you know, where I was going. We went to the pre-boarding area, boarded the flight. The flight taxied off to the runway and was called back. Now, the flight could have been called back for any other reason, but you can imagine what was going on in my head, especially given that no explanation was given. The pilot simply is a technical problem. And so the plane had to come back to the gate and we sat on the plane without explanation for another one hour. I'm sweating. I'm recording frantic messages and sending it to my family, to my lawyer, and to friends around the country to say, if anything happened to me, this is what is going on, just so you know. This is 4 a.m. in the night. People are still asleep. No, nobody was responding to my messages because they were asleep. So we were then ordered to leave the, leave the plane and go back to the pre-departure gate. Again, from our pre-departure gate, you could see the plane. Clearly, there were, there were no repairs going on on the exterior of the plane. So if there was any technical problem, it may have been internal, but we couldn't see it. Yeah, so for two hours, we were just sitting. So I had my mask on. I was hooded and seated in the corner, just hiding my head and praying nothing really happens. Um, and after two hours, we were asked to board the plane again. I had never been so relieved to be airborne. I feel like you lived my life. The exact same thing happened to me in terms of my release from prison, the negotiation to let me go, the demand to try me, waiting 10 months, almost 11 months for trial. They wouldn't do it. Eventually, they they withdraw the charges and then the big escape happens. You know, And, and we're going to come to the end of this. We've gone so much longer than we normally do, but I could not help it because the, the, the story, your your drive, your passion, your decisions, your experiences, all amazing things that that people can can learn from, that people can be inspired by. And I want to ask you the final question. Nick, if you were able to speak to people and tell them to fight for what they believe uh, or fight for what they're passionate about, and, and this is tough because I didn't prepare you for this, but what would you what would you tell them from your experience? If you opened your toolbox and you had to give them the first tool that you could pick up, what would that be? Well, before I answer your question, I am determined to go back to the country. I don't think I am going to be in exile. I have refused to seek asylum. I have refused to get documentation to live outside my own country. Next year, I'm determined to go back into the country. My own father passed away in June. I couldn't go for his burial. I buried my father through Zoom. My own partner, we had a baby. 
I haven't held my daughter in my hands. So I'm going to go back to Uganda uh, sometime next year because I believe that uh, Uganda is the only place I call home. Uh, so I'm going to I'm going to dare go back. But if I'm to advise anybody from my toolbox is first the only instrument that dictators have over you is fear. Overcome your fear and face these challenges head on. You can never postpone them. You must face them now. The second thing is believe and trust and trust and hope your country can be so much better than it is. It can always improve. Don't settle for the status quo. If we all settle for status quo, there will be no advancement in science. There will be no advancement in technology. We'll all be complacent and happy about progress is a result of challenging status quo, refusing to be complacent. And so believe in that and, and fight for it and work for it. Don't be deceived that your own individual circumstances will be different. And that because you have a government job, you have a good fat job and salary, your kids go to good schools, you're going to be safe. Nobody is safe unless we are all safe, unless the society is fair. Uh, and so the safety of your neighbor, the safety of your brother, the fairness that the systems that work around us have towards your brother is as important as it is to you. So fight and work for a fair society, for a democratic society. Uh, it is the only society I think is ideal and deserving for everyone. So fight on, never give up, fight on. I do not have the words to say thank you, Nick. Uh, not for being on the podcast, but and, and especially because today is the anniversary of your of your arrest. When when we spoke yesterday and we we were preparing for this and we discovered it was the anniversary, I I actually thought and said, well, maybe maybe Nick needs to take some time to reflect and stop. And you said, no, 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 no. In fact, the best use of the anniversary is to talk about this and inspire more people. And, and so I don't have the words to say thank you, not for being on the podcast, but for what you have devoted your, your life to, what you have risked your life for. And... I know many people have said thank you, but I I really want to to thank you, you know, for that, Nicholas. I mean, my brother, the owner is all mine. If my story can inspire one other person, I will go to my grave smiling and happy and trusting and believing that our future as a society, as a generation is better. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much, my brother, Nicholas Wapio, for being with us on the front lines of freedom. It's an honor. Thank you very much. I don't know what else to say. As you have heard today, an extraordinary story, extraordinary experiences. And as I sit here, my entire body is covered in goosebumps because I'm listening to someone who has has walked the talk and clearly intends on continuing to do that. I don't have any other lessons for you to pick up today. You've, you've picked it up yourself. So continue to do what you need to do to make right the things that need to be made right because the fight for freedom and democracy cannot be outsourced. Thank you for being with us. Share this with somebody and we'll see you again next time on the front lines of freedom. Bye-bye.